The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. We're studying 2 Thessalonians. We were down to chapter 2. I want to read the first 12 verses and then look at a number of passages this morning that I think can help us see some things about this chapter that perhaps we would not otherwise recognize or realize. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalteth himself above all that's called God, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Now ye know what withholdeth <clears throat> that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned to believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, there's some things in this, I think, that we need to sort of give a little emphasis to before we begin to look at some passages that I think uh, have a bearing on what we're studying. First of all, let me again remind you, I think it's important for us to look at the immediate situation in which these verses were written. Keep in mind this was the second letter that Paul wrote. And it seems to me that this being true, that surely the immediate situation would have a bearing on what he is writing. The persecution by the Jews and by the Jews using Gentiles into Thessalonica, I think, gives us a background of what he's dealing with. In the second place, it's well to keep in mind that the Bible talks about more than one coming of Christ. In verse 1 of chapter 2, 
he speaks of the same coming that he referred to, to be a reasonable explanation of these verses. And I think you'll find it an interesting study and a prophet. And by our gathering together unto him. That phrase is used in the first chapter, or rather in the first epistle. Look back at chapter 4. And <clears throat> notice now, beginning in the verse 13. Well, let's see. Uh, verse 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him. Then look over at chapter 5, and uh, let's see. Well, I was looking for the same. Verse 9. Verse 9. For God had not appointed us to wrath, but to. No, not. 10. 10. Who died for us, whether we wake or sleep, we should live together. With I call it the falling away, unless there be some way that we have of identifying what it's talking about. So it's not just a falling away, it's the falling away. But we'll talk more about that Sunday morning. <clears throat> Provided my throat don't get worse between now and then. It talks about. And this is the uh, beginning in the verses that follow, is this coming now. The coming of Christ in judgment. This morning, <clears throat> an infected sinus. So I'll try to talk a little bit slower and maybe not quite neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us. As a, We're studying 2 Thessalonians. We were down to chapter 2. That is present. Let no man deceive you by any first 12 verses. And then look at a number of passages. That day shall not come except there come see some things about this chapter that perhaps we it's not a falling away but the falling away an indication that it was a specific falling away that uh, evidently had been referred to and that had been talked about and that was understood at that time there's a difference in saying a word or by and the falling away for example <laughs> If I say a God, that might be one of many gods. But if I say the God, that is one specific God, the true and the living God. If I say a Christ, that might be one of many pretended Christ. But if I say the Christ, that is the specific Christ that's referred to in the Scripture. So I think... The American Standard Version and New King James are uh, help in rendering the falling away. An indication that there was a specific, certain, definite falling away that they could have some knowledge of and that had been spoken of and evidently Paul had already mentioned and dealt with while he was at Thessalonica. As he's said, so there's the danger of that being deceived about that. Notice again, that the man of sin be revealed, 
or the man of lawlessness be, be revealed, the son of perdition. Now that's an interesting phrase. The only other time that phrase is used is in John 17, 12, where Jesus, in talking about Judas, called him the son of perdition. Now we're going to look at some things this morning and see the close relationship between Judas and the Jewish leaders, especially the high priest, because I think that has a bearing on what he's talking about. And then <clears throat> dropping on down, notice that uh, verse 9, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Now note again, and with all dece deceivableness, of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So there is a blindness, a hardness of heart, a refusal to accept evidence that is presented. And this indicates that because their minds were closed, refusing to accept uh, what clear evidence would have led them to believe they're going to be misled. And therefore, God will send them, or the American Standard Version says, a working of error. And so he's going to allow, because of their hardness of heart, for a working of error to mislead them and to deceive them. Now let's look at some passages, keeping in mind that if surely there would be something in connection with uh, what uh, the, the situation at uh, Thessalonica with what Paul is now talking about. Now, no. Let's go back to the book of Matthew and look at a few passages and then look at some in uh, Luke and some in John and then some in Acts. Notice now, in Matthew 16, Jesus, very familiar passage, beginning in verse 13 through 19. And that's where we usually quit reading. He's talking now about the church being built. And then beginning in verse 21, from that time forth began uh, Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and raised the third day. Now know, there is a relationship between his death and the leadership, the chief priests, the elders of the Jewish nation. Look now in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus had gone into Jerusalem, and uh, the multitudes had met him. The Pharisees and scribes are upset about it. And so beginning in verse 33 of Matthew 21, I want to read this whole account here, and I want you to note carefully what he said. Here another parable. There was a certain householder who planted a vineyard, hedged it round about, digged a wine press in it, and built a tower, and led it out to a husbandman, and went to a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, 
he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants, beat one and killed another, and stoned another. Now this is a reference to the prophets of the Old Testament and the treatment that they had received. Again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. Now look at the next verse. But when the husband saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. Now what does that say? That says that they're going to take over the inheritance. They're going to claim it for their own. And that's exactly what they did. They claimed it. God sent Christ into the world to inherit or as the heir of the kingdom. Uh... Hebrews chapter 1 said he is the heir of all things. And Romans 8 shows that we inherit with him that he's the heir. And so they say now we're not going to accept that. We're going to take over the inheritance. All right, let's read on now and watch what, they, what it says. They caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. And so they have rejected him. They've cast him out of the vineyard. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto these husbandmen? Now the husbandmen here is a reference to the chief priest and the elders and the scribes in relationship to the Jewish kingdom. They say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men. Now look at that language. Wicked men, almost identical with some of the reading of Second Thessalonians 2. And will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their season. Jesus said unto them, Did you never read in the Scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth fruits thereof. That nation is referred to in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. It's a spiritual nation. Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God. Not talking about a fleshly nation, but it's talking about that spiritual nation. Now look at verse 45. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he spake of them. Who's he talking about? They understood. They got the lesson. They got the point. They said, he's talking about us. Well, now, what did he say about them? Number one, he had said they had rejected the prophets. He sent his son. And they're going to kill him, and they're going to say we're going to take over his inheritance. And thereby claim the heritage of God. All right, look at Matthew chapter 24 now. 
There are some things in uh, 23 that are important. Note uh, 23 and 2. Saying the scribes and, and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Who gave them the right to sit in Moses' seat? Look at that. Read that in relationship to 2 Thessalonians 2. And see what it says there. All right, now then, let's just note a few verses in uh, Matthew 24. All right, in Matthew 23, he'll remind them of what's going to happen upon this generation and that their house is going to be left unto them desolate. But you come down to verse 4 of Matthew 24. Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. I look at that in relationship to what 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Drop on down and uh, verse 9, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And that's exactly what they're doing when Paul wrote the Thessalonian letter. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. Many false prophets shall arise and deceive many. Now look at the false prophets in relationship to lying, signs, and wonders of 2 Thessalonians 2. And because iniquity, lawlessness, shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. And then <clears throat> verse 24, For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets and show great signs and wonders. Compare that with 2 Thessalonians 2 now. Lying signs and lying wonders. Insomuch that it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now, <clears throat> look at Matthew 26 and uh, verse 64. Well, we need to back up a little bit and recognize the fact that Jesus here is talking to the chief priest. Verse 57 says, and they laid hold of Jesus, led him away to Cephas, the high priest. To the scribes and the elders were assembled. And so when you come down to verse 64, that's who he's talking to. Now notice what he said. Jesus saith unto him. What him? The high priest. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus said then to the high priest himself that you're going to see judgment come on this very nation. You're going to see it. Talking to the very high priest. Turn on now to, uh, uh, let's see, Luke chapter 22. And let's note uh, verse uh, 52 and 53. Keep in mind now that he's again talking to the high priest. 
One of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear, verse 50. Then Jesus healed this. Verse 52, Then Jesus said unto the chief priest and captain of the temple and elders which were come to him, Be you come out as against a thief with swords and staves. Now look at it. When I was daily with you in the temple, and stretched forth, uh, you stretched forth no hand against me. Now mark this phrase. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. What does that say? That's saying that the devil's got them. They've given themselves over to Satan. He said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And the power of darkness has reference to Satan and his work. Look again in the 8th chapter of the book of John. <coughs> Jesus gets into a discussion <coughs> with the Jews concerning uh, some things beginning in uh, verse uh, 30 as he spake these words many believed on him then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him if you continue in my word then you're my disciples indeed I mark the danger of their and their hardness of heart and their blindness ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free they answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, you, you shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Now that's telling whose servants they are. He's going to explain that in this chapter. The servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. And so the servant symbolized by the chief priest over national Israel. If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know you're Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. Now why wouldn't his word have any place in him? Because of their blindness, their prejudice, their refusal to believe. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If you were Abraham's children, there's a difference now between Abraham's seed and Abraham's children. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they uh, to him, We be not born of fornication, we have one Father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, ye would love me, for I proceed forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? Now why couldn't they understand it? Why couldn't it? It wasn't because it's impossible but because they had become blinded, deceived of Satan, being used by Satan. Now look at verse 44. Ye are of your father the devil. The lust of your father will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh 
of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now put that with 2 Thessalonians 2. What does he talk about believing a lie and being damned? Here he tells them that you are of your father the devil. And he has never done anything but teach a lie. And that's what they're believing. Look on now to the book of Acts. Notice in the Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter and John have performed a miracle in the healing of the lame man. Look at chapter 4. As they spake unto the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid hands on them and put them in the hole until the next day, for it was now eventide. Albeit many of them which heard the word believed, the number of men was about 5,000. And it came to pass on the morrow that, that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, both of them served at high priest at various times. And here they both are. And John and Alexander and as many were the kindred of the high priest were gathered together to Jerusalem. And when they had set them in their midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then we have Peter's reply that he had given to it. And then you come on down to verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that had been with Jesus. Now mark this. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Now what are they doing with the evidence? Are these honest folks? Are they looking for truth? Do they love a lie or do they love truth? Do they have pleasure in unrighteousness or do they have pleasure in truth and righteousness? But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. Now look at it. Saying, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Now what kind of folks will see a miracle such as they saw, admit that it was a miracle, and say we can't deny it, and still hold on to what they believe? What kind of folks are those? Where would you find a better description of what you read in 2 Thessalonians 2 than what we are reading right here? People that are blind, lawless people. One other passage, and there are others that time will not allow us to look at, but look in Acts chapter 23. And Paul earnestly beholding the council said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Now look what Paul said. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. Compare that with what Jesus said of the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. Now look at it. 
For thou sittest to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. What is that but lawlessness? Here's a man that is supposed to uphold the law, and he violates the law. And that's the word that's used in the American Standard Version. Now then, that's just a figurative language to show the, what he was on the inside. If you go back and read Matthew 23 where it talks about the, uh, it's, it's just says whitewash, that's what he's talking about. If you go back and read Matthew 23, Jesus talked about where they whitewashed the tombs and then on the inside of like dead men's bones. So that's a, that's a significance of that. That's right. Now then, look at First uh, Timothy and note a, a few things in First Timothy. Verse four of First Timothy one said, "Neither giving heed to, uh, heed to fables and endless genealogies." Who would that be talking about? Who was interested in the genealogy? The Jews. And so that's that's who he's talking about which minister questioned rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. And then <clears throat> desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. That's 1 Timothy 1. Look now at uh, 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith or apostatize or fall away giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2. Lying signs and wonders, being deceived, speaking lies and hypocrisy. What did Jesus say in John 8? The devil, you're his children, and he's the father of lies. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron, what does 2 Thessalonians 2 say? They love a lie. Because they love a lie, they've held on to a lie, and that's what they believe. With all the evidence that's presented, they're not going to have the truth. And so here it is. It's being described, and it goes ahead and tells uh, what it's going to amount to. Look at 2, Thessalonians 3, or 2 Timothy 3 now. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, Hitty, look back at Matthew 24, where Jesus talked about how they'd <clears throat> be given up of their own family, hate their own family. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. So that's what Paul saw. Now, <clears throat> let's look at uh, 
Titus uh, in uh, chapter 1, beginning in uh, verse 10. For there are many unruler and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, that's Jews, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of them said, even a prophet of their own said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Look at verse 14. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and the commandments of men that turn from the truth. Now, Paul wrote this epistle following his first imprisonment and prior to his second imprisonment. So you can see now what's happening. Look at the Hebrew letter. Notice in Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the principle, the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, or the doctrine of baptism, the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and return of judgment. This we'll do if God permit. For it's impossible of those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and who may partake of the Holy Ghost and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they fall away, and there's no if there in that, it's unfortunate the King James translators put an if in there. That's exactly what has happened. They had fallen away. To renew them again in repentance, seeing they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. Now then look at Hebrews chapter 10. And beginning in verse uh, 25, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now note, that said forsaking. The word there means to abandon. And so they have forsaken the church. They've abandoned. They've apostatized. That's what that amounts to. For if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. But a certain fearful looking forward of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith was sanctified an unholy thing, and done despite on the spirit of grace. For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. Now, of course, that principle is true that he'd judge his people, anyone that were his people. But here it has specific reference to his people of the Old Testament, national Israel. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But call to remembrance the former days which after you were illuminated, you endured great flight of affliction. Now, keep in mind, pressure is being applied. They are suffering. Christians are suffering. Some of them, under the pressure, are abandoning the church and going back to the temple. The temple's still standing, going back to the temple, and are offering sacrifices under the tent, at the temple. And every, when they abandoned the church and went back to the temple and offered there an animal sacrifice, that was equal to crucifying anew the Son of God. That was saying that 
His sacrifice upon the cross was indeed of no avail. Partly while you were made a gazing stock by the reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companion to them that were so you. For you had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense reward. For you have need of patience. After that you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. That can't refer to the final judgment. Either the man that wrote that wasn't inspired, or else that doesn't refer to his coming in the final judgment. Because that says a little while. He that will come will not tarry. Well, if that's a reference to the final judgment, then he did tarry. And the statement's wrong. That's a reference to his coming in judgment on the nation of Israel. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Now look at verse uh, uh, 39. For we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Now let's turn over to chapter 12. Look at some verses. He's talking about the discipline in the first part of the chapter, encouraging them to not fail of the grace of God, and reminds them of uh, Esau. And then uh, coming down to verse 18, he says, For you are not coming to the mount that might be touched, and to burn with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they had heard, entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure that which is com was commanded, and, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or thrust through with the dark. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But you are coming to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn, or firstborn ones, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. That is, Old Testament saints. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. The blood of Christ did. Hebrews 9, uh, uh, Hebrews 9, 15 and 16, Romans 3, 25 and 26. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, which speaketh better things than that of Abel. That's talking about Abel's blood or sacrifice that is offered back in chapter 11. Not Abel's own blood that was shed. It's talking about the blood of Christ being better than the blood of the Old Testament. The blood of bulls and goats. So that you see that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall you not escape who return away from him that speaketh from heaven whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, said, I mark it, yet once more I shake not only the earth also, but also the heaven. That's taken from Haggai chapter 2. And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. What are they talking about? 
That's talking about the removing of national Israel, the destroying of the temple, the removing of the institutions of Moses, the undoing and the elimination of the place and where the high priest officiated. And that's going to all be removed. It was removed. Whenever Titus overran the temple, Jerusalem ransacked the temple, destroyed it. All the records were destroyed, and there's no way that a Jew can trace his lineage today. If a man wanted to be high priest for the Jews that are over in Israel today, it would be an impossibility. Because there's not a one that can find that he belonged to the Levitical tribe. He could not prove that he was a descendant of Aaron. There's no way. God eliminated that lock, stock, and barrel. And when you hear somebody talking about that <clears throat> Christ is going to come back and that the temple is going to be rebuilt, that's the figment of man's imagination. That's the devil deceiving people, just like he did back then. There's not going to be any such thing as that. And that's what this, these verses say. Now mark it. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. And that's the kingdom that began at Pentecost. And when God destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, that was his way of saying, that thing is gone forever, never to be restored to anything. Here is the kingdom, the one kingdom, and there'll never be another. That was his way of putting an end to the thing. And that's what we have. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve, serve God acceptable with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, as I said in the beginning, there are a variety of ideas there are some that think that Second uh, Thessalonians 2 is a reference to the Roman Catholic Church. While it's true that the principles that are found there may continue to be uh, found down through the history of time, that's not the immediate thing in my judgment that he's talking about. Some say it has reference to emperor worship of the Roman Empire. Well, that was already... Uh, in effect, if I had time, I could read some statements where some of the emperors came, claimed to be saved and claimed to be God. But if you read it in the context and the immediate uh, situation that was taking place in the New Testament, the problem that the early church faced and the problem that Paul faced was his own fleshly nation headed by the high priest who was the instigator of the whole thing. If you'll read Acts 8, Paul went to the chief priest to get authority to bind Christians and bring them and put them in prison. And so it seems to me that in view of what's said in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Acts, and uh, Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and uh, especially in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus and in Hebrews that this is what he's talking about. That it has reference to the 
national Israel because it was the high priest that sat in the temple. He was the only one that could have. There was no other one to sit in the temple. I realize there are those that say that the, word, the temple there has reverend of the church. But number one, the Pope has never been in the church. Number two, how could one man sit in the church as described in 2 Thessalonians 2 when the church is made up of congregations, each with its own autonomy? That's an impossibility. There's no way that one man could sit as described here in 2 Thessalonians 2 and have that power over the church of the New Testament that's made up of a variety of congregations, each one being autonomous. But this man had control over the whole thing. And that's exactly what the high priest did. Well, I think, oh yes, I think the principle of that, whenever we allow our religion to become a form, and if we live for the flesh and the pleasure of this life. Satan has us just exactly like he did then. And if Satan can take God's people and get them to think that the most important thing in life are the pleasures and the joys of this life, that spiritual things are secondary, then he's doing for us exactly what he did for national Israel. And that's the way he works. That's the reason that I need to be careful to be sure that I don't believe his lie. That the most important thing in life is material things. They're not. And if he can get me to believe that and then just be a member of the church and not let my worship this morning affect my life and the way I live when I go out from here. Why, Satan don't care if I attend ever, ever service as long as my life is controlled by the flesh and I live for my own will, not God's will, and that God's not first in my life and that spiritual things are not more important than anything else. He's happy. 